This is Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. The Hip Hop Caucus Hurricane Ida Relief Fund is raising funds to directly benefit family and individuals impacted by Hurricane Ida and who are in need of urgent assistance throughout the Gulf Coast. Every dollar raised will go directly to families and people as cash for things they most need right now, whether it be food, gas, lodging, medicine, or other emergency expenses. Hip Hop Caucus will be matching the first $10,000 donated. Please donate immediately. Go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA to 66539. Again, go to hiphopcaucus.org or text IDA to 66539. Now let's get ready for the coolest show. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know it's the hip hop caucus. Well, Congressman Yvette Clark, it is always a pleasure to see you. Um, and first, first and foremost, how are you doing? I'm doing as best I can under the circumstances. It's great to join you, Reverend. Uh, it's been some time. Uh, the pandemic has kept, uh, you know, friends distant. But thank God we have the technology to uh, visit one another virtually. No, no, definitely. Um, and so welcome to the podcast and the conversation. Thank you for joining our conversation. Uh, I just want to tell you, um, it means so much to 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 see you, even if it's virtually. <laughs> it's still good to to see you in this day and age. You know, with the pandemic, you just happy to see people. This when you just see them, if it's virtually or in person, you just happy to see them. So it absolutely, really- and it's really it's it, you know we we got to count our blessings because uh, yeah. so many of our loved ones have been hit so hard by this pandemic. Many have lost their lives. And, uh, you know, we got to persevere uh, and, and pick up the mantle uh, for a lot of those soldiers that were taken down by by the virus. Well, Congressman Clark, I just want to say to you, uh, you know, first, first and foremost, the work you have done in your district, um, you know, this is hip hop. <laughs> so in New York, you know. In your district, we 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 appreciate. There's certain Congress people we we appreciate so much, and you are definitely one of them. Uh, but for folks who don't know, who who is Congresswoman Yvette Clark? Well, um, I represent the ninth district of New York. I am honored to represent in the United States House of Representatives. I'm a second generation, first generation American. My parents immigrated to the United States from the beautiful island nation of Jamaica. And so um, I think I'm a reflection of a district that is multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, and multi-generational. And so, um, you know, I am a, a member of Congress who sits on the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House of Representatives, and I am the uh 
subcommittee chair on the Committee for Homeland Security for the Committee on Cybersecurity, Infrastructure Protection and Innovation. Um, you know, I'm a sister from, from Flatbush, uh, <laughs> Flatbush, Brooklyn. And uh, again, Rev, it's great for me to be here with you. And uh, I'm excited to get involved in this conversation. Yeah, and no, I'm excited too. I just want to, you know, I don't know if I don't know if you knew this, but we we share this in common. You know, I, I am also my parents are both from Trinidad. Ah, well, Trini to the bone idea. I should have known Yearwood. I know the the surname is not uh something that's common. Yeah, uh, among yeah, wonderful. So that's it. So 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 we we have that in common, and so. I got to start off, you know, this is, you know, this show has really blossomed and we got a huge, particularly a lot of young people who check out this conversation here on The Coolest Show. So if you had to get your, fav- your favorite your fav- your favorite, Jamaican meal and you had to get some, either some dashing, some green fig, some, some I don't know what you want to get there. What, 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 what would it be? What, 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 would, your, what would your Jamaican uh, menu of choice be? Wow. So for breakfast, I'd want <laughs> aki and saltfish with right. green banana and yellow yam. Mm. Uh, for lunch, uh, I may take in a little bit of stew chicken with um, uh, rice and peas, uh, carrots and cabbage. For dinner, uh, some curried lobster with mm. uh, kalaloo and, um, you know, uh, it, it, all the fixings, all the fixings. It's, uh, you know, a, a unique uh, diet but not unique among the people who live in my district. So you can get those culinary delights from just about every Caribbean nation, many of the continental African countries. Uh, you can travel the world if you come to the ninth district of New York. I know that's right. Well, well, well when I, well, if we see each other in person, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring over some roti then to add to that. I was going to tell you, we have some of the best <laughs> roti in America, in my district. And uh, you many roti shops. Uh, so I, I grew up eating roti. As a matter of fact, I have traveled to Trinidad and Tobago on a number of occasions. So for my high school graduation gift from my parents, uh, they uh, gave me a trip to Trinidad and Tobago during carnival. I mm. had like three classmates, <laughs> schoolmates in high school that were from, their parents were from Trinidad and Tobago. So we all went down together and I thought I was in Disney World. I know that's right. So listen, you, you, if you do a book, you could do a book from, from carnival to Congress, you know? <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. That we're gearing a- up here in Brooklyn to celebrate Caribbean heritage. We do that every year. Uh, during Labor Day. Uh, now with the pandemic, our festivities had to be scaled back. Uh, but we look forward to bringing Carnival back to Brooklyn uh, in the years to come. As long as everyone gets vaccinated, That's right. um, come on we now. should be able to uh, resume uh, some level of normous, normalcy uh, for ourselves and our children. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to join you when those carnivals there. Oh, you um, gotta come, my brother. You ain't seen. We're bigger than we're we're, we're bigger than Trinidad and Tobago. All right, man. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, listen, listen, listen. and you know why? (laughs) Is because every uh, nation has some form of carnival. Mm. So we have different groups that are organized to be a part of this carnival. It was, of course, headed by 
folks from Trinidad and Tobago, but you have your St. Vincent and the Grenadine contingent, you have your Barbadian contingent, you have your Trinis, you have your Jamaicans, you have your Haitians, uh, you have uh, some folks from continental Africa match marching up in there, Nigerians. Uh, so it, it's a massive, massive carnival. Oh, you got to come. What kind one of, of Brooklyn's one of Brooklyn's best kept secrets, unless you're a carnival bacchanal type of person. All right now, right now, come on, you you ain't got to sell me too tough. I'm there. You got. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Congresswoman, what do you want your legacy to be? I take it back to my district. You know, I was the beneficiary of a community uh, in the uh, old tradition of it takes a village to raise a child. And they are my major inspiration and motivation. What I want to bring to central Brooklyn and particularly to the more marginalized, uh, the most vulnerable, um, you know, in our communities is a sense of safety, upward mobility, um, uh, dealing with health and making sure that they have every resource uh, uh, available to them to improve on their their health and well-being, uh, opportunities for entrepreneurship, entrep- um, seeing more Black-owned businesses um, in our community, um, making sure that we understand what generational wealth is about mm. so that when we buy our properties, we teach our children the value of holding on to those properties um, there's a lot of work to be done. And so I, my legacy will be that I've, uh, during my tenure in Congress, made this district and the lives of the people here far better than when I entered into Congress. And we're in that moment right now. Um, this is the opportunity, I believe, of our generation to make that shift We have an administration in the Biden-Harris administration that has at least articulated a desire to close the disparities, to recognize that Black lives matter, um, and to put their policy and resource where, uh, where their mouth is. And on the legislative end, in the House of Representatives in the Congress, we have a unique opportunity because my party happens to be the party in 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 the majority in the House and the Senate. And so um, really uh, standing up a a, a strong policy uh, uh, platform that gives momentum to the type of change uh, that our communities have been crying out for, that this pandemic has made even more urgent um, will be uh, my legacy. To that, to, to the people of the Ninth District of New York. That, well, that is amazing. Talk about you mentioned something that's very important, and I know we told us in the past about the connection of all the things you mentioned, from police brutality to the pandemic, to pollution, to poverty. Um, and that's one of the things I don't think people, a lot of folks who tune in um, to the work around what we do around climate, but they don't understand sometimes how all these things connect how racial justice is climate justice and how climate justice is racial justice. How do those things can, how do, how do all those things can, and, and also immigration, how do all those things connect for you and your daily uh, job on Congress? Well, what I share with 
everyone is that the Ninth District of New York is sort of the epicenter of all of the disparities um, that you know is given recognition in this in this time and in this space. Uh, you know, we had some of the largest marches um, in last summer around Black Lives Matter, around George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Uh, and in that march uh, was a multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-ethnic movement of people um, that, you know, understood, felt in their bones um, the need to be a part of the change, uh, to demand uh, that these changes take place um, in our society. And when you think about um, what moves us in that way? I think it's the fact that we recognize that Black communities have had to bear the brunt of mm. every illness, um, every exploitation, even up to this very day, um, that a baked in sort of white supremacy based um, governance structure uh, has, 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 has been uh, has been pushing, has been uh, uh, sort of constructing um, around us. And, and, and we have been, unfortunately, um, you know, on the receiving end of just such horrible policy, whether it's um, redlining, which forces um, black and low-income families into the least desirable locations to live, typically around power plants or uh, polluting uh, environments, be it, uh, you know, waste disposal dumps, waste transfer stations, um, power plants. Um, and that has impacted our health, right? And, and, and that's based on, of course, uh, racist uh, government-backed policy of redlining, not allowing Black people to receive mortgages or, or to find affordable housing in more affluent communities, right? Then you have the issue of, okay, you live in those circumstances. You're now all grouped up in one area. You're impoverished. And the police that um, police your community become an occupying force. Because when you're living in poverty, your health is not well, health being both physical and mental health. Um, you will encounter hostilities within your own community, whether it's from, you know, folks who uh, seek to do you harm in, within your own community or those who police you uh, when you call for help, um, their perception of who you are. That is all compounded by uh, a marginalizing and a, um, you know, a, a diminishing of, of humanity that has been relegated to communities of color, in particular communities of African descent. So when we talk about environmental justice, when we talk about climate change, when we talk about uh, systemic racism, uh, when we talk about police brutality, it, 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 it's, it's comprehensive in the life and well-being of people of African descent in this country. 
they're, they're, they're inextricably linked just based on uh, the policies that have become a way of life for not only the black community, but for the white community. Because uh, when you turn a blind eye to the conditions of fellow human beings, um, generation after generation, when you buy into the rhetoric of um, disenfranchisement, of dehumanization, then you become a part of the problem. And I think that, again, for this generation, what we were able to see, because we had to be still during the pandemic, in the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and so many others was a tipping point for those who could not look away. And they uh, had their eyes open um, and they could choose whether they wanted to go back to sleep or they want to stay woke. Right. Mm-hmm. And many chose to stay woke. And that's why I believe that this is the opportunity. This is the moment for bold and decisive action that changes the trajectory of the way in which black people have been relegated to living life in our civil society. Let me ask you a question on that. And I want to actually set it up a little bit here uh, in this question. So one of the things that people sometimes, and this is kind of the spirit of James Baldwin, that to be in this country and to be black is to be sometimes is to be angry. A lot of the time, and that's a kind of a paraphrasing of, of the quote, but I, I want to lead into that with this. Um, you know, I served this country. I was a, an officer in the Air Force. You are serving this country now as an amazing, powerful Congress uh, person in the halls of Congress, but we're both black. Um, we, we, we see and hear and feel the pain of our people. That never departs from who we are. There are people sometimes they they're suspect of us because they think that how can you be a leader on one side? In other words, can how can you basically love this country, which which we do, but also critique it? How how do you and many members deal with that right now, particularly with also the reality of white supremacy and the aspect of fighting for black liberation? How do you deal with that when you when you see folks pulling back? voting rights, people intentionally putting, um, you know, pollution, 68% of black people live within 30 miles of a coal fire power plant, intentionally polluting, uh, you know, intentionally doing things to hurt us. How do you balance that? How do you maintain your hope, but also maintain your passion um, in dealing with the uh, atrocities that come to particularly people of color in this country? Well, you know, let me say this. I believe in democracy. And that means that, you know, in the same way that there are those who um, would seek to do us harm, there are those who seek uh, to see change. And those are the people that I coalesce with. Understanding that we can make this country because we are a part of this country live up to its highest ideals. And we can shape that um, by engaging, by being involved, by voting, by electing individuals who will speak truth to power, who will get to the table and legislate, who will 
hold the line on making sure that we are respected, protected, and reflected in everything that America is truly about. Now, it's a battle, but I, I come from strong stock. You know, I said that my my parents are from from the Caribbean. They, too, grew up with colonial masters. And so, you know, while they come from a free nation of of people of African descent, they're rooted in the struggle for um, the African diaspora. We were rooted in that. We being uh, my family engaged in activism. As, as a child, and I, and I was a beneficiary of that. I tell people all the time, I'm what you call a boom exer. So I was born the last two months of the baby boom and was basically raised as a, as a, as a Gen X. And, you know, because I was born and raised just after the civil rights movement, the revolutionary spirit was in the air um, here in Brooklyn. Uh, the Black Power Movement was uh, what shaped all of the institutions around me and enabled me to be very firm in who I am, where I'm, what I'm about, receive a very good and quality education. Because again, that village that raised the child didn't take any shorts in terms of demanding that, you know, we have representation at every level of governance that we, uh, and when we didn't have that representation, that we stayed in the battle on the front lines protesting to make sure that our demands were addressed. And so I come out of a climate where there was hope in the struggle. Mm -hmm. And I say that um, because that's what I do each and every day. You know, when I think about, for instance, the Supreme Court uh, last night uh, lifting the eviction moratorium. Mm. Uh, you know, I know that I got to get to work. I got to get to work because there are people in my constituency who are already under tremendous pressure because of the rents being so damn high. Add to that the fact that they've been asked to shelter in place so that we could, you know, kill the virus. So this was not something they had a choice in doing. We shut down the economy and then we have to get government to respond by making sure that we make these people whole and that they are not uh, dislodged from our community, that we hold developers accountable, um, that they aren't relegated once again to some of the worst living conditions that will continue to exacerbate pre-existing conditions with their health. So I'm in the battle. I understand and I'm clear on what the issues are. And I've built coalitions so that we can address them and that we can stay on the front line until we are victorious. If anybody is hearing this, they can hear your passion. And I can I can vouch for your your love for our people. Um I've I've been around you since when you first came here to Congress and and have seen you just just grow as one of the leaders. But in in a, in a, in this way, I had to ask this question because a lot of young people there's a lot of frustration, and they they're frustrated with sometimes what they see with some of to be honest 
some of your colleagues who seem to get comfortable and they're like, man, we out here dying. Like they're killing us. Like we out here, we dying on these streets. We dying, you know, we, we it's just so much going on. And what they see, um, they don't see that intensity. They see, and when they come sometimes, you know, to the, to the CBCs, you know, it gets it looks a little bit sometimes a little too comfortable. You know, everybody, you know, got their cheese on sticks and they got little, you know, little glasses and they're like, man, hold up, what's going on? We here, we out here fighting. Explain, particularly after the reckoning with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so so many more. Explain, are they right for their frustration, or is there something that they're that maybe they're missing? that they're not seeing that maybe you can talk to them about. And I don't need you to explain for nobody. Else. Let me be very, very clear to it. Uh, you know, right. Congressman Clark, I'm not asking you to, exp- you, you already speak for you. You can't speak for nobody else, but you and what you do. So I'm not asking you to be like the, you know, you know, sometimes when we, when we go to a certain spaces, we, we, the black person, we talk about all black people. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you pretty much. Do you, do you understand their frustration? You know, I, I do. You know, it, 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 we, we've all been where these young folk are at. Um, if you were raised in a movement, right? Um, you know, always wanting to see our people do better. Um, you know, always questioning whether those in authority um, really see and hear our plight and are addressing it, right? And, and, and when we felt that they weren't, we got in the street. Right. When we felt that they weren't, we uh, got behind candidates that understood our struggle and that were engaged in it with us. And I think that oftentimes what young people see is just one facet of an individual. Mm. I would say that, you know, one of the things that I did that I and and this generation actually has far more opportunity than we did because we had to go to the library, do research, get microfiche. You guys can Google, Google everything. You got it right on your phone. So it wasn't, it's not as time consuming as when we had to do research. Take a look at uh, the members of the Congressional Black Caucus. You know, look at where they come from, read up on them. And, you know, but I think that oftentimes you know, because we live our, our lives through social media, we think that that's the end all to be all. And someone's opinion is indeed fact. And oftentimes that's not the case. Mm. Unfortunately, you know, propaganda is what will ultimately uh, be our demise if we don't do our work and our research. I can tell you that I work with some bad colleagues, that these folks have, you know, they have pushed the envelope beyond push the envelope. They have shaped the debate in ways in which, you know, were they not there, you know, conditions would be exponentially worse uh, for our communities. And now these are folks whose tenure have put them in key leadership positions. So knowing what those positions are is important. Do that research. And then how they can impact policy mm. is, 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 is what we need to be focused on. Um, you know, I, I, I think that oftentimes people jump to conclusions about these individuals 
Well, first of all, let's bear in mind that each of them is elected by a constituency from wherever they are. Those are the individuals who know best because they have lived their lives uh, looking at the work of that person, being beneficiaries of the work of that person. So why not get a sense of what the folks in those communities feel about their, uh, their, their elected official and question you know, the work that has been done? I think that it's really about us knowing the history and the work of, of, of these members. And, and let me say something about what happens when Black folk come together, because you, you mentioned the Congressional on, Black Folks Foundation. Mm-hmm. It's a space where it's communal, where that shared lived experience, that pain and that, that joy, that victory, uh, or, or, or that setback, is, is, is almost genetically um, brought together. And from that comes an empowerment that no one can take away. Mm-hmm. And that is where members of Congress have an opportunity to really get the feedback, to know who is in the movement, to know what is taking place on the ground in ways that you, you don't order narrowly get and then you find the commonalities across the board and you work on them and you move and 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 you get those victories let me tell you something maxine waters wasn't the chair of the financial services committee the cares act the american rescue plan the child care tax credit all of these benefits that we have crafted our legislation, signed into law by President Biden, would not be, uh, 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 I think, there. And if they were there, they wouldn't have been as robust Mm. because there was an insistence on uh, making sure that that happened. And we had the back, we being the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, who make up such a significant part of uh, the, the legislative body at this stage, that nothing moves without the Congressional Black Caucus. So, uh, you know, just a, that's a long answer to a short question. No, that's, that's a good But answer. I, I think that, answer. you know, what I find with young people and frustration is, has to do with um, instant gratification. And um, when you, as you be mature, as we all mature, we, you know, we start looking at what the long game is, how far we've come and how far we need to go. And oftentimes it's not instantaneously. There are catalytic moments like the one we're in right now. And I would say for those who are frustrated, turn that frustration into power and unleash it, not only to make sure that the policies that we are pushing right now get passed, but to make sure that you're registered to vote And if things don't go the way we are insisting that they go, you vote that preference in the next elections, which are just around the corner. Congressman, you said a lot there. And, uh, you know, that that you said some very important things that I'm sure that people, I'm sure when 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 they're hearing this, they're going to have some feedback. And 
and and and, and respect what you said. And I guess in that, you know, because your your district was one Shirley Chisholm's district, um, and so you're speaking about that legacy, that passing the torch. What does that mean to you to be sitting in and and her seat that and and her iconic message of being unbought and unbossed? You know, it 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 must be something in the water here. Um, <laughs> Reverend Yearwood, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm fortunate to come out of that tradition. You know, I was elected uh, locally uh, to our local city council uh, in succession from my mother, who was a community activist who was endorsed by Shirley Chisholm for her run for the New York City Council. My mother became the first foreign born woman to be elected in the New York City Council. Between her and I, we are the first and only mother-daughter succession in wow, the history. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah, in the history of the city council. And so, you know, our, my, and and, and our sort of um, uh, energy, um, focus, uh, policymaking is driven by the ground, by the grassroots, um, because we recognize very early on that, um, you know, if we don't speak up and bring a new perspective to the table, the status quo will continue, uh, you know, to be the status quo. And we being bought, uh, unbought and unbossed uh, gives you that latitude because you're, 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 you're not only your inspiration, but your power comes from the people. Your power comes from the people, not from necessarily uh, those uh, who are in sort of the establishment, if you will, but those who, you know, don't get to have those conversations with their elected officials on a regular basis. Those who, uh, you know, work three and four jobs just to keep a roof over their head so they can't attend the community meetings. We're speaking for them. Uh, we're the voice of, of, of the, of the uh, you know, folks who you know, don't have those opportunities. We, we are their voice. And when you lift up those voices, at the end of the day, you lift up everyone. Mm. That's the humanity that's been exploited. That's the humanity who uh, are, are never uh, taking our second thought uh, when it comes to what the adverse impact will be should a certain policy go sideways or be engineered in a way in which uh, it, it doesn't even uh, take into account their lived experiences. So, you know, when I'm in Washington, D.C., and when I'm in my district, I'm conscious of the fact that when we pass bills in Washington, D.C., if we don't widen the aperture, there's going to be a significant part of my constituency that we're going to have to find alternative ways of navigating through the system. The undocumented, for instance, didn't get any benefits through the CARES Act. That was during a, an administration that was hostile to immigrants. So when we get the opportunity, the next administration comes in, we're able to widen the aperture to take care of those families who have children like myself born in the United States, but whose parents may not have the documentation to be able to make sure that in this pandemic, when they're unable to go to their jobs, their children are fed, that their house, their kids are ready to go back to school, that we're continuing to build 
this community. We mobilized. That's what uh, the Honorable Shirley Chisholm did here in central Brooklyn. She mobilized those who were marginal. And then she also made sure that they recognized that they had a stake in the development of our community, the development of our politics in our community, and that we could demand, we could demand that things change and we could be a part of that change, helping to shape the policies that go for it. So, you know, I think it's in the water here. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, the Honorable Shirley Chisholm, like my mother and I uh, come from a Caribbean background and uh, she was the first black woman uh, to be elected to Congress. So I had the pleasure of, of meeting her. And there are just so many folks who were, I consider to be in my DNA that were revolutionary mm. that, um, you know, it, 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 it's your barometer, it's your North Star. So that, you know, when you are uh, on the ground and, and you're among your people, you're, you're, a, you're, you're like a sponge, you're absorbing all of the pain and also all of the glory. And right. you take that, I take that with me when I go to Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, I unleash it in through my policymaking, through my discussions with my colleagues um, and through my coalescing to get our people, um, get our people moving, moving and, um, and and getting them what, what they deserve uh, from our government. Congressman. Clark, this time always goes so fast, you know, I just because I'm like talking to old friends and then we had these conversations. I just have really just two more questions for you. Um, one is you mentioned because we mentioned about what's it's in the water. And I know for folks that that's that's a that's a, a terminology for saying strong stock. Now I'm gonna <laughs> turn it a little bit because <laughs> we also looking for clean air and clean water. Cause uh because you and we dealing with this climate. Let me ask you. Two, two things in the issue of climate. Well, one, have you read the IPCC report in a governmental panel on climate change report? Or have you seen that report? I, I, I've seen it. I haven't read it in its entirety. My, my staff has been breaking it down for me. But, you know, it, 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 from what I've gathered, it, you know, it's, 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 as they say, it's a done deal. We need to act now. Right. You know, there, there is no getting around it. You know, I don't understand some of my colleagues, particularly on the other side of the aisle, who know that uh, we're living through climate change right now. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not a distant notion. It's not like if we you know, if we don't act in, you know, 10 years, climate change will be on us. Climate change is on us and we have to do human adaptation at this stage in order to avert the very worst from happening. And, um, you know, I can tell you that I've always been an environmental justice person. Um, and, uh, you know, with climate change come a whole host of issues uh, for communities of color that uh, we've been dealing with, but that will be magnified 10 times over uh, if we don't shut down our use of fossil fuels immediately, you know, and that means yesterday. So, you know, going to zero carbon emissions as quickly as possible, as humanly possible, has to be, um, you know, our focus at this stage. Um, you know, I tell people uh, my district was actually hit by Superstorm Sandy, mm -hmm. right? Um, and when I saw the type of damage 
that, you know, rising sea level can do uh, to communities and what was at stake as a result of that. Uh, there, there wasn't loss of life, but people worked hard for their property. They worked hard to make sure that they could raise their children and their families in healthy environments. And they were totally flooded out, didn't have the insurance. And so their, their, their life's investment went down the drain. And, you know, the type of help that should have come from the federal government was was very, very, uh, you know, tied up um, because the whole city was pretty much. Well, not the whole city, but a significant part of the city was mm-hmm. submerged. So, you know, uh, we, this is it. And this is our once in a generation opportunity to to battle, to battle the climate change. And that means, again, looking at. Uh, new industries, looking at how communities of color will in will will be in on the ground floor of new industry. We have to do, you know, our switch over to uh, electricity that is renewable, and we have to look at electrifying uh, our communities in a way in which it's just and equitable. So EV charging stations, all of the industries that have to convert. Uh, to a new way of life, we've got to get that going now. And, and we have the opportunity to do that. I'm a proud sponsor of, a th- of the Thrive Agenda, which centers communities of color. And we've got to push for this. We, we've got to make it happen. I think with our budget reconciliation, and this is Washington speak, we'll have this opportunity to do it. And I want everyone to stay tuned. We've got to hold people's feet to the fire, give them the courage they need, uh, to get this done, because this is bigger than anyone's reelection. This is bigger than right. any one individual. This is um, how we will live our lives, how our children will be able to raise their children and their grandchildren um, if we don't get this right. Let me ask you a question, because you sit on a committee, obviously dealing with energy and climate. Um Talk what 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 policy? I want to make sure people hear the policy. You're doing a, you're doing a lot actually on on, on this issue. You know, you're not just talking about it. And you, you know, you talk really good about it because you actually articulate on the issue. But also, you're doing a lot on policy. To tell us, tell the audience um, what what specific policies you're working on um, to challenge and take and fight the climate crisis. Yes. Well, let me say that first of all. Uh, There are multiple pieces of legislation. Congresswoman Robin Kelly and I, uh, Congresswoman Robin Kelly's from Illinois. She's the vice chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee. I'm the immediate past vice chair. We have established a disparities working group um, on uh, the Committee of Energy and Commerce. And looking at our entire portfolio from climate change to energy to telecom, Um, We are looking at what we need to do to help get to zero zero carbon emissions by the year 2035. There are some steps in between that would get us to move uh, by um, 2030, um, putting the, the, the pieces in place. And I can tell everyone, you know, quite frankly, our energy providers, they're already making the changes. They just need us to force them to, to, to shift, 
you know, and as long as, you know, there are members of Congress that are holding on to old modes of, of energy production, be it coal, be it, uh, you know, uh, the burning of oil and gas, um, you know, the longer it's going to take us to get there. So what we're doing through our disparities working group is quantifying what the impact is on communities of color, drafting legislation to make sure that we can mitigate current damages, but move forward with equity and justice for those communities that have been uh, unjustly uh, taken on the burden of the continued use of fossil fuels. So legislation-wise, there's the EV charging stations uh, legislation that will bring prosperity to communities where, uh, you know, there hadn't been and access. Right. We don't want we don't want uh, the infrastructure bill to build out uh, an EV or electric vehicle charging stations in other parts of the country. We're then forced to continue to take in the fumes of um, of, of fossil fuels being burnt by vehicles right. in our communities. And we're not part of that change until, you know, decades later. We are looking at the Thrive Agenda which really I think is the ultimate game changer, talks about everything from the workforce to uh, uh, creating incentives for uh, the actual change to take place between now and 2030 uh, in various industries uh, that are energy producing. It incentivizes uh, more of the uh, sort of natural energy and renewable energy products that uh, could be a, a part of uh, that, not only transition, but switch to renewable energies. So I want to encourage you guys, look at the portfolio that we've put forward. And I'm also a member of the Progressive Caucus, which has been leading in this space um, so that we can get this work done. I'm, 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 I'm amped up, as they say. I'm, I'm gassed up around it because it's an imperative. I just don't see any other future for our our communities, our families, quite frankly, our planet, if we don't do this now. Congresswoman, this is my last question. And I had, I had a couple of questions on some hip hop between who's, between the Bronx and Brooklyn and all that. But we're we, we going to save that for another time. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I was gonna say, don't, don't, I, you know, I give it up. I give it up to Uptown. I give it up to Uptown. <laughs> but I tell people all the time, it was a Jamaican brother that really kicked it off. That's so, right. <laughs> no, no. The, what the can Caribbean I say? Roots and hip hop like is serious. Just like, but just like the Jamaican sprinters. <laughs> You know, we you, you get that blend of, of the Western <laughs> Hemisphere. We're unstoppable. I know that's right. Oh man, I I can't let you go without this saying a word right here. Um, just one, just things you're doing around women's health because it's amazing. And then also, I I would love for you to give a parting word to particularly young black women. Um, we have some who are the producers of this show. Um, we have some who are in our movement. Um, about they, they this is they are doing some great work. But speak to them. Like I want to just give you time to speak directly to them at this time. Absolutely. Well, you know, I being a black woman, <laughs> obviously, um, you know, our voice has always been a part of the movement of our people. 
though we don't necessarily get the same recognition um, throughout history, we, you know, our our voices and our history and our stories still are yet to be told. Um, that I think is critical uh, for us to continue in that tradition. Um, we uh, are, are, are unique in the American experiment in that, you know, we've come through crisis after crisis after crisis, resilient and determined to continue to fight for change. And so um, what I would say to younger sisters out there is that, you know, see something beyond yourself. Know that uh, whatever you do for others, is, it can be gratifying and can help lift you as well. And that's what service is about. I tell people that, you know, when I saw uh, coming up the way that people organized for me and my brother to have a wholesome um, environment in which to thrive, um, they, they, they did it for, for their children as much as they did it for me and my brother. And that's the way I think most black women um, address this work. We nurture um, children and, and not just our children, because, you know, our, our children's uh, friends will come over and, you know, it, it, it's communal. And so, you know, when you think about what's missing uh, for your advancement, understand that there are tens of thousands of sisters that are going through the same thing. And that's what I recognize. So for one of the pieces of legislation that I'm championing, and hopefully it will become law very soon, it's my bill is called the Stephanie Tubbs Jones um, Uterine Fibroid Bill. And it's uh, HR 2007. This bill deals with a condition that many Black women, as a matter of fact, uh, it, 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 the, the numbers are, are simply alarming, um, who develop this condition, which are non-cancerous growths in the uterus. Um, and it, 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 it's a devastating disease, but there has been no research into it. And, and there's been no funding for cure or treatments for it. And I was uh, a victim of it. And, and uh, Stephanie Tubbs Jones was my colleague. Um, when I first got to Congress, she's uh, now the late Stephanie Tubbs Jones, uh, and she knew about this issue. Uh, she established a, re a, a piece of legislation that I'm now carrying forward in her name um, to make sure that the lives of Black women are centered. Is We do the work. Uh, no matter what our conditions are, we do the work, and we are caretakers. We are looking after others, uh, and, and, and we don't take the time to look after ourselves. Um, so. I, I, that is an ode to Black women because I know how many of my sisters are suffering with this condition, some knowingly, some unknowingly, because this condition can begin as early as 15 years of age, um, well, you know, during your most productive years of your life. And so, um, you know, I am focused on bringing to the table conversations and lived experiences that wouldn't be there, be it for 
my experiences, be it for my uh, interaction and, and, and my shaping, my grooming um, in the in the ninth district of New York. Um, and, and we all come with unique experiences. But when you have an opportunity to use your voice to disrupt, uh, you know, you know, the status quo and uh, the way in which people perceive who you are and what you're about, disrupt it. And that's what Harriet Tubman was about. That's what Sojourner Truth was about. That's what that's what Michelle Obama was about. I mean, when you think about the number of black women who, despite all of the name calling, all of the negativity thrown their way have made our lives so much better, uh, who uh, have, you know, borne the brunt of every social ill in raising families in our society. I tell people, and I'm going to wrap with this, um, Reverend Yearwood, you know, when people talk about the fact that uh, there's police brutality on Black boys and men, uh, they make it seem like that happens in a vacuum. And I tell people that, you know, what they forget is that when our sons get in, 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 involved with um, the uh, criminal justice system, it's just as taxing on us as it is on them. Why? Because we have to take the day off from work to go to court. We have to sell everything we have to help make bail. We have to make sure that there's a voice for our children. And when we don't have the capacity to do that, it eats away at our soul. And so, you know, when we see sisters out there in the struggle who have lost their loved ones to police brutality, understand that that struggle is inextricably linked to who we are as a people. Mm. And we do our part in lifting up. Um, and lifting up uh, not only our community, but by extension, all of humanity, because we have been treated uh, with, with, with the lack of respect uh, for our dignity as human beings. So let's stay in the struggle, sis. Let's show that, you know, we are human beings with dignity and we are powerful and awesome because when we make up our mind, we make things happen. And uh, I'm excited to be a part of the sisterhood that's making things happen. I know that's right. Congressman, folks want to contact you or your office. How can they do that? Well, they can visit me and follow me at at Rep Yvette Clark. Um, and you can also, uh, my office in Brooklyn is on Lenox Road, 222 Lenox Road. Um, please stop in. Uh, you can go to my website. Uh, it's clark.house.gov please feel free to reach out. Um, listen, I'm giving you my opinions today. And I understand that these answers um, don't even, you know, go as deep as they ought to in, in the analysis of where we are as a people. I'm just giving you a little lens into sort of my thinking. So follow me on my social media so that we can continue to engage, um, that you can know uh, what's happening on the Hill uh, what's happening in Brooklyn, and uh, you can, uh, you know, help lift up a sister in, in the moments of, of, of stress and despair. Our guest today is U.S. Representative Yvette Clark for New York's 9th Congressional District, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host 
of The Coolest Show. Thank you so much, Congressman Yvette Clark. Thank you, and hip-hop forever. Hip-hop forever. Can't stop, won't Won't stop. stop. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Fake100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.